Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Jack Glazier to discuss his book, Anthropology and Radical Humanism, Native and African American Narratives and the Myth of Race. Thanks for tuning in. Anthropology and Radical Humanism is based on the work of the famed ethnographer of the Winnebago, Paul Radin. During his three-year appointment at Fisk University in the late 1920s, Radin and a graduate student, Andrew Polk Watson, collected autobiographies and religious conversion narratives from elderly African Americans. Their texts represent the first systematic record of slavery as told by former slaves. Radin regarded each narrative as the unimpeachable self-representation of a unique, thoughtful individual, precisely the perspective marking his earlier Winnebago work. As a radical humanist, Radin was an outspoken critic of racial explanations of human affairs then pervading not only popular thinking, but also historical and sociological scholarship, placing him in the vanguard of anti-racist scholars. Utilizing this material and other archival and published sources, Jack Glazier revisits the Radin-Watson collection and sets Paul Radin's findings within the broader context of his discipline, African-American culture, and Radin's career-defining work among the Winnebago. Jack Glazier is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Oberlin College and former president of the Central States Anthropological Society. He's a fellow of the American Anthropological Association and the Royal Anthropological Institute. His previous books include Been Coming Through Some Hard Times, Race, History, and Memory in Western Kentucky, and Dispersing the Ghetto, the Relocation of Jewish Immigrants Across America. Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book with us today. Well, thanks, Kurt. It's a pleasure being with you. I'm really interested to get right into it. And as I said in the introduction, Anthropology and Radical Humanism is a study of the work of Paul Radin. Could you tell listeners who are unfamiliar a little bit about Paul Radin and what his place was in early 20th century anthropology? Certainly. Paul Radin is notable as one of the uh, first students, or at least among the first generation of students at Columbia University with their mentor, Franz Boas, who is the founder of uh, modern anthropology in the United States and was a tireless crusader against racism. So Radin uh, was in very good company and with people like Alfred Kroeber, uh, Robert Lowy, and Edward Sapir. And uh, these individuals under Boaz's tutelage essentially made their reputations as ethnographers of Native North America. Uh, the American Indian essentially was anthropology at that time, and it was another couple of decades before American anthropologists were venturing out to other parts of the world. So that is Radin's place within anthropology. He is also notable, as you said, as the famed ethnographer of the Winnebago, uh, and he established through his work there the life history as a critical tool used by field anthropologists. His book, Crashing Thunder, the Autobiography of an American Indian, published in the 20s, is really a landmark and uh, set anthropology on that particular uh, course. So Radin had many distinctive qualities about him, and I, I might add, that uh, in 1934, he wrote a book called The Racial Myth, which was really the first anthropological effort to expose the delusions 
of Nazism at a point when the Nazis had just ascended to power in Germany. I wonder if we could follow that on a little bit further, because one of the things that you mentioned in your answer is Raiden's propensity for using life histories and and self-reporting from the people that he was studying. He and Boaz were pushing back against what some refer to as scientific racism, which is kind of underlying Nazi ideology. Could you say a little bit about their anthropological efforts? Yes, precisely true of of Boaz. uh, For him, a lifelong effort to combat racial delusions uh, and certainly embodied in Nazism toward the end of uh, Boaz's life. He died in 1942, rather depressed, I might say, uh, at what was happening not only in the war, but also in his own country, where racism was uh, so prominent among public figures and the uh, population at large. In the 19th century, American anthropology, as it was, was utterly dominated by the notion that race is destiny. We probably should say biological race is destiny, and that uh, race was absolutely determinant of uh, what a person would become in life. And Boaz particularly used very precise scientific measurements of new immigrants coming into this country to show that essentially race could not be uh, formalized as a fixed feature, that it was, it was very changeable. And moreover, that uh, one could not attribute particular behaviors inevitably to particular biological racial groups, that ultimately what Boaz was trying to do, as well as Raiden and their colleagues, was to substitute culture for race as essentially the wellspring of human thought and behavior, that it's shared and learned traditions of culture that make us what we are, not biological race. How does that manifest in like a methodology, what, you know, to say that Raiden and Boaz were trying to supplant sort of scientific assumptions about biological race with understandings of culture and its effect on people's destinies. What does that look like on the ground? What kind of work did they do to support that thinking? Well, essentially to show that biology bore no necessary connection to cultural traditions, to behavior, and one could find tremendous variations among people allegedly of the same biological race whose patterns of life, the family and belief, the religion, were tremendously variable. This is one of the major things that they, uh, that they demonstrated. No necessary connection between race, biological race, language, and culture, any associations that did exist among them were purely a result of uh, historical association, not a biological determinism. I wonder if we could pursue this further by thinking about Raiden's work with the Winnebago. How did he, how did he come to doing that research? Because that's sort of foundational to the discussions of race when it comes to the work that happens later, which you recount in the, in the book. Yes. Well, how he came to the Winnebago essentially was through his teacher, with whom he had strong disagreements on particular points, uh, Franz Boas, who was an immigrant from Germany, European schooled, 
and if not authoritarian, certainly very authoritative in directing his students to what he thought they should be doing. So it's really Boaz who directed Raiden to study the Winnebago. Why the Winnebago? Well, essentially the task of, of the American anthropologists at the time was a kind of uh, what we've called salvage ethnography to try to capture what life was like before the contact with uh, European American uh, civilization. Uh, one could find remnants, but certainly in the early 20th century, but uh, there was a lot of reliance on the testimony of elders. It was trying to capture it before it receded beyond anyone's uh, ability to, uh, to capture it. And so this is what Raiden was uh, very much devoted to doing, uh, the reconstruction of life among the Winnebago prior to contact. And his book, for example, The Winnebago, is a vast compendium of cultural information that uh, he gathered over a number of years. And it really salvages Winnebago culture as it was before contact. I'm interested in this in this idea of salvage anthropology because it leads to a bit of a conflict, or at least I, I think I see it leading to a bit of a conflict with another anthropological idea that I take to be happening at the same time, which is to say this sort of feeling like by looking at indigenous peoples and others, we can get a sense of uh, the evolution of societies. That was very much a prominent feature of 19th century anthropology. We call it cultural evolutionism, that somehow going to a so-called primitive society would capture some aspect of where Western society had been in the distant past. I could tell you that much of American anthropology under Boaz not only was opposed to the notion of biological race as a determinant of behavior, but very, very much opposed to the idea of cultural evolutionism. And for Raiden among the Winnebago, he did not see these people as in an arrested stage of evolutionary development. He saw them as his contemporaries, as his equals in every respect, including intellectually, that they could not be in any sense linked to some sort of earlier stage in Western civilization. They're altogether different. And so that was part of what made Raiden a radical figure, that he was among this group of anthropologists pushing back against that idea in addition to ideas about race. One of the things that you show really clearly in the book is that Raiden took his work with indigenous people really seriously. He was very proficient in languages and, and had a lot of friends among them in addition to resources. Exactly. I would say the radical aspect, I mean, there are a number of radical aspects to Raiden's work, but in the title of the book, Radical Humanism, what I'm referring to there is that Raiden was opposed to what we might simply call social science, the effort to compare cultures and to generalize about them. He felt that anything that required um, abstraction from the details of particular people, named individuals, was, was a useless endeavor. 
In other words, he wanted to preserve the integrity of the data as given to him in the texts and narrations of his informants. So in that respect, he is very much the radical humanist in his opposition to efforts at scientific generalization. If you're talking about these two cultures, bear X, Y, and Z similarities, he was unalterably opposed to that because the human factor is lost. In the spirit of preserving the human factor, as we're talking so much about Paul Radin and his work, one of the things that really stands out early in the book is how tenuously Radin was installed in the American Academy or in the European Academy more generally. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about his academic career trajectory and maybe his personality as a scholar? Well, it's fascinating. I mean, he was, uh, in a certain sense, the bad boy of anthropology. He had a very rocky relationship with Franz Boas, who otherwise, with I think just about all of his students, main, that is, Boas maintained a very cordial and warm set of relationships. Raiden, I think, was probably a very a difficult figure. Uh, he taught at some nine institutions, never had a tenure track job. He chafed under the kind of rules and regulations of the academic world, including such mundane things as meeting his classes. <laughs> Actually, he was uh, somewhat notorious at Berkeley right after the war when he taught for a few years for just not showing up for a few days uh, at, uh, at his classes. So that certainly wasn't going to endear him to other places where he, uh, where he taught. There are other possible reasons for this uh, kind of peripatetic existence, but I think the, the one that uh, interests me the most is that Raiden, I think, cultivated a kind of personal alienation and did not want any kind of institutional loyalty or obligation to limit the kinds of questions he could ask. He thought that by being something, I believe he thought that by being something other than the footloose scholar that he was, there would be some, some degree of complacency. There would be a danger, let's say, of, of projecting his own situation, let's say, his own comfortable situation in the academy onto the people he was, he was studying. So we think, I think this footloose living, uh, this itinerant and rootless life, contributed to what he thought was an ability to look at things without any kind of bias from institutional or personal loyalties. Having, having made my career in the academic world, I'm particularly fond of uh, one of his remarks where he talked about a belief flourishing among respected scholars, um, beliefs owing, as he says, to the well-known limitations of the academic mind and the narrowness of its vision. <laughs> and uh, he didn't want to be part of that. <laughs> it is interesting that it's often in service of the anthropological work that he is coming at odds with the institutions that he belongs in. You, you mentioned the California example, where one of, the, one of the students or one of his colleagues speculated that he had been missing classes because he was off running around with informants, doing things and participating in research. Yeah. I mean, if he heard something really interesting going on at another part of the state at an Indian reservation, apparently, according to one of his later students, he would just, he would just simply uh, take off. 
he also didn't, I'm sure, didn't win friends in various places because he was somewhat uh, lax in his personal obligations. He owed money here and there and was rather improvident, didn't return books to the library on time. Of course, he's not unique <laughs> in that respect. But any number of things, I think, contributed to this, this itinerant life, not the least of which is it's something he wanted. I want, one of the things that he is, I would assume, rather unique in is that the FBI took some notice of his activities. Could you say a little bit about that and what it had to do with his scholarship? Certainly. Raiden has a very big FBI file, and the FBI considered him a communist. And I didn't find any evidence that he was uh, at all a member of the Communist Party. But then one has to, as with all things, place the question within a historical context. Radin attended many meetings about black civil rights. He testified against racial covenants. He was in support of black labor. And to have gone to any of those meetings at that time was to invite FBI scrutiny. And this is, you know, he did not hesitate in supporting these, what we would consider very, very worthy causes. And then, of course, he spoke on behalf of Spanish loyalists in the 1930s, which uh, certainly guaranteed he would be tagged uh, a communist. Whether that reputation influenced his itinerant life that is not holding a position. It may have played a role. I tend, I tend to think if it did, it was very, very minor. So in doing things that we would consider hardly radical these days, in those days, in Raiden's time, the 30s, the 40s, is to support black civil rights was to be a, you know, a potential communist. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Jack Glazier, author of Anthropology and Radical Humanism, Native and African-American Narratives and the Myth of Race. So far, we've been talking about Paul Radin's biography sort of generally, looking at his you know, approach as an anthropologist, some of his personal tendencies, his political allegiances, etc. But the book is really built on material that Radin developed while he was at Fisk University. When did he come to Fisk and what did he set out to do there? The appointment at Fisk came in 1927, and he stayed there until 1930. I think he might have had the option of staying on, but he left a bit early. This is a very interesting case. He resigned for reasons that are not at all clear, then contacted his uh, various friends from anthropology was a small community, and one of his very best friends was uh, the great linguist and anthropologist Edward Sapir. And Sapir simply couldn't understand the resignation, especially at that time, the implication being the stock market had just crashed. What is this man doing? And he said, Raiden has really got to stop resigning perfectly good positions. So it's unclear uh, why he did that. But he received the appointment in 1927 as a result of a grant from the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Memorial uh, for three years at Fisk University. And at Fisk, he engaged in the collection of narratives, a kind of continuation of the interests that he developed among the Winnebago. 
the words, the texts, the narratives of informants were utterly crucial. And he collected with his assistant, really collaborator, Andrew Polk Watson, eight life histories. Actually, Watson did six of them, Raiden did two, and a number of, quite a number of conversion narratives, religious conversion narratives, which described in many ways, sky journeys that desperate people made where they encountered God and reached a kind of new level of peace and personal fulfillment as, as a result. So it's, an, it's really quite an extraordinary collection. And what's important, to, I mean, there are many things that are important about it, but is the Raiden-Watson collaboration is the very first effort to systematically collect the narratives of people who had been enslaved. And this comes nearly a decade before the very famous uh, Works Progress Administration uh, slave narrative collection, which took the researchers to 17 states and they collected something like 2,000 narratives. So Raiden and Watson were first. Now, of course, in the 19th century and in the 20th century, there were various uh, newspaper documents which would report the uh, experience of a particular slave. The abolitionists produced a number of these, but these were not, this was not a systematic effort to collect large numbers of these, uh, of these narratives. And some of the narratives were published by Fisk University in 1945 with no comment, and they aren't even indicated as authored by Watson and or uh, Raiden. They're simply a the documentation of what they of what they did, and uh, it's been known for a long time that Paul Raiden was at Fisk, and he worked with Andrew Polk Watson. The nature of that work, the nature of the relationship, was never documented, uh, and that's one of the contributions of my book, I believe in looking at Raiden's unpublished manuscript on his Fisk work, we get some real insight into the relationship of these, these two men who recognize the profound importance of what these former slaves, as well as people born shortly after the Civil War, what they had to say. Raiden, a man who was not terribly generous in his praise of other people and didn't always give credit or didn't usually give credit where it was deserved was magnanimous in regard to Watson. I was really glad to read that he appreciated Watson uh, for in effect making the work possible. Yeah, it's it's not uncommon in the academy that those graduate students who do the the bulk of the grunt work as you said was it six of the eight histories uh, were collected by Watson. I really want to get into the content of those histories and, and what they tell us about the religious experience of former slaves, et cetera. Before we move on, I did want to ask, can you tell us a little bit about Andrew Polk Watson? What did the work with Raiden lead him to and what became of his career? Certainly. Actually, I might add that Watson not only collected six of the autobiographies, and actually, let me add parenthetically, Raiden collected two of them. And the two longest ones and most detailed were the ones that Raiden collected. And in looking at that, I mean, I, I would think automatically, this is a result of Raiden's long experience begun two decades before 
among the Winnebago. But Raiden was, again, magnanimous. And he said, these just happened to be particularly good informants that I got. And if Watson had interviewed these people, he would have had equally long life histories. And it just happens that the, the six he interviewed were not as forthcoming and not in, as detailed about their autobiographies. And then beyond that, uh, I would say all of the conversion narratives, and they collected nearly 100, not all of them were published, all of those were collected by Watson, usually with or often with Raiden accompanying him. Now, Watson himself, when the work began in 1927, was in his early 30s. He had been in World War I. He uh, had briefly been a student at the University of Chicago, was a native of Franklin, Tennessee, which is a bit south of Nashville. And as a student at Fisk, was you know familiar with a lot of the people that they were interviewing. So he was critical in making contact, but also as an African-American in those days, utterly crucial. As you can imagine, Raiden trying on his own without Watson to have undertaken this work, a man of cosmopolitan background, European-born, usually with a three-piece suit and a beret, uh, no Southern experience, trying to uh, importune himself among African-Americans, could not, have, could not possibly have succeeded. At any rate, Watson was a, was a mature student. He, as Raiden said, he caught on right away to the nature of the work and, uh, and its importance. Uh, and ended up writing his thesis about the work that they were they were doing and the churches that these people uh, had belonged to. And then eventually, Watson took a job in Texas at Wiley College. And there, one of his valued and esteemed colleagues was a man named Melvin Tolson, whom I think I mentioned in a footnote, uh, was portrayed by Denzel Washington in a film called The Great Debaters, where this little college had won a national championship in the mid-1930s. Melvin Tolson was a notable poet, a Harlem Renaissance scholar, and, uh, and writer. Eventually, uh, Watson, with his kind of belief in a universal humanism, sort of like, like Raiden, converted to the Baha'i faith, which I found very interesting. I learned that from his octogenarian sons whom I had the pleasure of talking with. Let's return to the work that Watson and Raiden did at Fisk. You've mentioned a little bit about the outline of these life histories, their, their conversion narratives. You refer to them as sky journeys and that they are in large part made up of folks who had been formerly enslaved. Could you say a little more about the narratives generally and maybe how they related to Raiden's anthropological project? Of the conversion narratives, these were in many ways psychologically restorative for people who had been so hopelessly brutalized in mind and body. Uh, through the slave experience, and even into the post-Civil War period of American, of American apartheid. And through these sky journeys, their presence in heaven, or the, to which they would travel, and encounters with God or his angelic minions or Jesus, 
they have a new sense of worthiness. This is what they couldn't get in their, in their normal lives. All that was required of them was a kind of unconditional, unquestioned love of God. And if they had that, they knew that on their return to a normal life on earth, that something, something awaited them. They were eventually, they, they would eventually reach, reach heaven. That was the promise through their unshakable faith. And Raiden does a, a, a very, very interesting job of, and, and Watson as well, where they regard people who were illiterate field hands, regarded them as possessed of imaginative genius, their words, and originality and ingenuity. Because as humanists, both of them, they had in mind the human reinterpretive imagination, by which I mean how slaves and those born after the Civil War could take the preachments of white churchmen and interpret them very differently as they were intended. Let's say in the slave era, slave owners had absolutely no hesitation. As a matter of fact, they invited white churchmen and missionaries to go among the slaves and to preach to them. And part of that was to create a kind of quiescence because part of the preaching was to exhort people to follow the master and the mistress as the surest route to heaven. Otherwise, it would be hell and damnation. And people heard that, and they didn't. They were not going to accept a version of God that made him complicit in their enslavement and their, their oppression. And so these, these preachings on the part of white churchmen essentially were reinterpreted by people to essentially eliminate hell. There wasn't there wasn't much of a of a fear of hell at all, and they don't it doesn't doesn't play a major role. It was just a matter of heaven or nothing, not heaven or hell. And Raiden contrasts this with uh, the the White Baptist Church, where people are absolutely worried that they may not make it to heaven. It's a constant worry about sin and sinning, and that they might be consigned to hell. This simply had no place in the the evolving black theology of the time. The reinterpretation ensured that God would come for them at some time. As long as they maintain a perfect faith, they didn't have to worry. So this is a a kind of recurrent idea in in these conversion narratives, the operation of this imaginative genius to take these words that are coming to them from white churchmen and to transform them into something psychologically meaningful, where people have a sense of themselves as legitimate human beings, something they couldn't get in the regime of slavery and American apartheid. Absolutely not. And you know, the life histories, in part, uh, reiterate uh, some of, uh, some of these, these experiences. I was thinking about your characterization of the conversion narratives and the interplay between the formerly enslaved and the white religion of the South. 
did Raiden find similar things in his work with the Winnebago and other indigenous people? Was was his thinking concerned with that kind of colonial encounter and like, what it does to a culture and how a culture responds to that? Yes, I think uh, I think it's fair to say he was concerned with those with those issues, the, the re- religious issues, and in the Winnebago work, he addresses the impact of the coming of peyote to the uh, American Indians between 1880 and 1920. Peyote had diffused, I think, upward from the southwest. Oklahoma became a kind of epicenter, and it got to the Winnebago, Ho-Chunk peoples, and it was a point of great schism between those who continued to practice uh, a traditional religion and those who had adopted peyote. And uh, one of the things that I tried to do in the book is to link the work among the Winnebago Ho-Chunk on the one hand and the people that were interviewed at Fisk on the other. And I think the connection is that these conversion narratives talk about an immediate encounter in heaven, either with God, his angels, even Jesus, and the transformative effect of that on each person of giving them a new uh, sense of self, a psychological peace that they could not get in this world. And among the Winnebago of people who had been uh, often dissolute, alcoholic, ignoring kinship obligations, actions that brought them a kind of a deep unhappiness and instability. Peyote, again and again in the testimonies, brings out an almost immediate encounter with the divine, with God. People who would ingest the drug and report visions of encountering God. And that's, to me, the point of connection between these two very, very different uh, peoples and different historical experiences. And I think as, as a result of peyote, the people would report, uh, as kind of self-report, a, a new kind of peace and a new sense of self, a new sense of order in their lives. Fascinating that, the, that in each of the cases you describe what Raiden is finding is an individual personal experience, you know, it's not a, it's not a statistical variance or it's not a sort of the whole culture moves in some direction or other, but it's really the individual having a profound personal spiritual experience. Exactly. That is the deep humanism of Raiden's work. Yeah. I wonder if you could speculate a little uh, about anthropology where it is today in light of thinking about, you know, Raiden's commitment to the life history, to the individual, to the unique culture and its experience of the world. What would Paul Raiden say about the state of the field today, uh, particularly as we think about like big data and sort of social science moves in, in the academy? Well, I have no doubt that uh, he would have been resolutely opposed to those uh, kinds of social science models, efforts at generalization, and, uh, and, and so forth. It's the human person that counted above all. And we know, we know Raiden's work through named informants. 
the Winnebago have become, you know, for people who still read the ethnography, we know who these people are. We know Sam Blowsnake and Jasper Blowsnake and Oliver Lemaire. You know, these are named people. We sort of miss that in the Fisk narratives, and I could only speculate why people are not named. It might have been a, simply an effort to protect people from any kind of intrusion, to protect their privacy, but it in no sense uh, denies the individual quality of each narrative and of each uh, of each life. So I think Raiden, if he were still with us, would be very approving of those anthropologists who are deep within the lives of people uh, among whom they are living, all to the good. You know, the more we talk about it and the more we think about it, the the work that you describe Raiden doing continues to feel so relevant in this age where if nothing else, scientific racism is amping up exponentially online and elsewhere. You see a lot of attempts to to suss out evidence of human physical difference as one's destiny. So it feels like the kind of radical humanism that you're exploring in the book is more vital and necessary now you know, than it ever was before. Well, as I say early in the book and also at the end, I think I said it was, the word was dispiriting mm. to realize that the racial myth written in 1934 never reissued. It's, my copy is very tattered. To look at that book and to realize that it has a continuing relevance for today, where there are too many people in this country and abroad who still find political value in the notion of soil and blood. Uh, kind of new fascism, and the racial and ethno-racial violence and hatred has is resurgent, without question, uh, both rhetorically and in the streets. And uh, I do do talk about that. That's a dispiriting place to have to to wrap up today. But I do really heartily recommend the book for insights into ways in which one prominent anthropologist really did push back against that tendency in his own culture. And I think that we as scholars, as readers, as thinkers, can think of ways to do so in our own. So I really appreciate your contribution, Jack, and I thank you so much for taking the time to um, chat with me about it today. Thank you, Kurt. I welcome the opportunity. Jack Glazier's book, Anthropology and Radical Humanism, Native and African-American Narratives and the Myth of Race, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Medica Gos, Dante Smith, Kylie Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books. <laughs> <laughs>